This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Hello there, folks. Welcome to Existential. And today I have, again, the second time the honor of having the one and only Linda Sarsour on the podcast with me. Linda, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Corey, for having me again. Yeah. So we're like, okay, because we were talking before I hit record and like I asked you how you were doing and you said you're doing fabulous. And and I, I, I kind of had this like response. I was like, oh, wow, because I kind of feel like people who are like you on the front lines who are directly opposing injustice and those who are advocates of injustice to their faces, that I kind of get this feeling and I, and I think to myself, how could they be at peace? And then I watch you, I see what you're putting out in the world and I'm seeing peace and love and joy. So how in the world, Linda, are you, are you maintaining those things in the midst of what we are facing in our world right now? Being on the front lines, Corey, is a spiritual and truly magical experience. And although the backdrop is Black death and pain and suffering and poverty and racism and, and all the ills, the people who are fighting against injustice are joy. They are doing this from a place of radical love. When you are on the front lines, you feel even amidst the rubber bullets and the tear gas, you look around and you feel safety because you look around and see people who are ready to fight for their freedom and for the freedom of others by any means necessary. And those mm -hmm. are the spaces that I choose to be in. I feel that I am amongst um, a people of faith. Uh, you know, oftentimes, and you and I spoke about this, Corey, there's a lot of chastising of the young people on the streets. And mm -hmm. people will say, well, where are the young people in the church? Where are the young people in the synagogue? Where are the young people in the mosque? And I say to those people that the God's creation is in the street and God is with them in, their, in the street. They are worshiping with their feet. They are standing up for God's creation. They are standing up for love and for justice, which are God. God is love. God is justice. And so I'm feeling so hopeful um, we're watching transformation literally happen, Corey, right before our very eyes. The things that were marginalized, things that were seen as radical conversation, things that we would never have mm -hmm. ever thought in our wildest dreams could happen right now are happening. This idea mm -hmm. of speaking about and, and embracing abolition and embracing defunding of police departments, you know, passing statewide legislations, you know, taking down the symbols of hate like Confederate flags and monuments of slave masters and slave owners. I mean, this is all happening everywhere. Every, every way, which way you look, something like that is happening all yeah. at the time. And it's absolutely empowering. Um, and there's no other way to look at it, but to say that the people have rose up and this is what people power looks like. Yeah. It's amazing to watch and everything you just named like, I, I do think that there is a part of me that thought, I don't know that we're ever going to see it to this degree. And it, it, I remember it was probably a couple of weeks ago that you tweeted about 
in all your years of being a part of the movement and, and advocating for justice, this feels different. And, and I guess my question for you is like, why now? What, what do, you, do you have a sense of what is it about the George Floyd incident, about Arby or Breonna Taylor, or, or what is it that, that sort of awakened the American consciousness to at least be willing to, to move closer to a place of justice? I think there's a combination of things, Corey. I just want to make it clear that there have been people in our communities who have been fighting against police violence, um, fighting against all the systems of oppression for decades, and some we can say historically uh, Black uh, communities for centuries and Indigenous communities. So I just want to make sure that 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 there that this is in context that there has been a long term fight for justice and freedom in America for Black people and communities of color. But what I think is different right now is that we are in a context of a global pandemic. And for the last few months, people, particularly communities of color, Black people, poor people, working class people who have seen or experienced deeper poverty, lost jobs, are in quarantine, have experienced um, you know, the, the collateral damage of this racist healthcare infrastructure where you have cities like Milwaukee, where Black people are 25% of the population, but they are about 75% of the deaths that are happening. Mm-hmm. Places like Detroit, similar statistics, watching the, the, the influx of um, you know, increased poverty, uh, the policing in the name of social distancing disproportionately mm-hmm. being implemented against communities of color. And there was a moment where George Floyd, who was not the first or last black man to be killed at the hands of police became the catalyst. It was like the camel that, I mean, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And so it wasn't just about George Floyd. It was, it was people holding all of these things together. I mean, we went to Minneapolis. I was in Minneapolis from the first day when George Floyd got murdered. And the reason why I was there was because I was in a Memorial day weekend. I was in Louisville, Kentucky with Breonna Taylor's family we were invited there by her lawyers and local members of her community who came and were like, please, like people need to know our daughter's name. They need to know our daughter's story. Why is our daughter not a national story? She's an EMT essential worker murdered at the hands of the Louisville Police Department while she was asleep in her house. And so mm-hmm. we went to a, a Memorial Day weekend. We were in Kentucky. Then we drove an hour and a half Corey, to Indianapolis, where just a few weeks prior, Three people were murdered at the hands of the Indianapolis police in a matter of 24 hours. Two young black men, separate incidents, and one woman who was crossing the street and was hit by an off-duty police officer who was pregnant. So she and her baby died. Oh, my gosh. So we went to meet up with the family of Mikhail Rose, who is one of those young black men who was murdered at the hands of the Indianapolis police. And then from there, we watched the video of George Floyd, just like everybody else. And one of my colleagues, Angelo Pinto, who was with me, said, Linda, we can't go back to New York. How is it that we're in the, in, in the Midwest and we just see, we watched this video? And what we did was, Corey, is we drove about eight and, a, eight and a half hours from Indianapolis to Minneapolis and happened to be there when all the uprisings began. I actually remember me and Tamika Mallory were using the auto zone as cover on the first day of protesting. So when they started throwing tear gas and rubber bullets, we were jumping in behind the building of auto zone. The next day we show up and there is no auto zone. The auto zone has been burnt to, to dust wow. to wow. the ground. And so that what's different now for these young people in the street. And I was out there and I was like standing there just 
absorbing their energy and passion is that these were this was the generation that was saying enough is enough and this time we mean it and i think yeah. the generation that came a little bit our generation to some extent Corey, but the generation a little bit before ours like the one right before ours we came they came up in a generation of respectability politics mm-hmm. where to try to yep. infiltrate the inside let's try to get to the boardrooms let's try yeah. to run people for office let's you know reframe the justice that we want in terms that are amicable to white people or that can yeah. be accepted by white people yep. and then this generation comes and says nope not anymore. We're going to defund the police department and we're not changing that, whether Absolutely. you like it or not, whether you ex- expect it or not. So I think the difference right now is all of these things, uh, because of the global pandemic, basically became so thick and layered that finally people just broke out of it and were like, this yeah. is not okay. And then George yeah. was the catalyst for that. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about the auto zone being gone, right? And I watched Mark Lamont Hill, he was on Candace Owens. Uh, podcast. I don't, I very rarely, if ever, pay any attention at all to what Candace Owens is saying, but I saw Mark Lamont Hill on and I was like, okay, this is interesting. What are they talking about? And she asked him a question about the protesters and about the violence done in the communities and the burning down of buildings and yada, 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 the stuff that people who oppose the resistance are saying about uh, the protest. And I, I'm, I'm wondering what you say to those folks like because I'm a person who believes that every social movement in the history of mankind has had both violent and nonviolent resistance happening, not necessarily in concert, but they've been happening. What is your position on some of the more violent resistance that we've seen happening over the last several months? What I say to folks, Corey, is that you cannot be a person that lives in a in a space of privilege in the comfort of your home and chastise people who have been impacted by so many forms of violence. And if your focus is on violence being committed by young people who are watching their brothers, their neighbors, their fathers, not only being killed indiscriminately at the hands of police, but also the Mm -hmm. incarceration, the poverty, the lack of hope for an actual future where people can live in their full dignity, you don't get to tell to get mm. to tell young people how to resist, to no, resist op- oppression. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with the tactics and strategies. As you know, I am trained in Kingian nonviolence. That is my that is the ideology that I choose to organize from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I will not tell young black people how to yeah. resist. And to and yeah. to be even more clear about this, and I don't know if you probably watched my sister Tamika Mallory's speech that she did in Minneapolis, you know, she said to the people, because the the media outlets were asking her, they said, you know, look at this looting and look at the burning of the buildings. And she said, looting. She said, she said, is that why you're here? Is that what you want to ask me about? She said, if you don't want looting, if you don't want burning down of buildings, what about arresting and charging the cops? How about that being the goal, Mm -hmm. right? Instead of focusing on how people are reacting, why don't you just do what you're supposed to do, which is fire cops and arrest cops and charge Mm -hmm. cops who are killing black people. And then maybe maybe there wouldn't be any looting. And she also Mm -hmm. said something that is really important from historical context. There is no history that says or shows or demonstrates that looting is inherent to black people, that black people historically inherent to them is stealing. Or even violence. Mm-hmm. Looting is inherent to American culture. Yes. Looting 
is inherent to American culture. Violence is inherent to American culture. So what Tamika said to them, she said, if you're mad at black young people looting, which by the way, there were a lot of white people that were looting there yes, too. Exactly, exactly. To say, if you're mad at young black people looting or young black people engaging in what you believe are violent tactics, you taught them looting. They mm. learned looting from America. They learned looting. They learned <laughs> violence from this country. And so yeah. why, if you want them to do better, then you need to do better. This American government needs to do better by the people. And, yeah. and when I saw the police department in particular burn, and I was just standing there in absolute awe of it all. Think about it, Corey. That institution, that police department, wasn't just a building. It was the symbol yep. of American policing and its disproportionate impact on communities of color. It was the institution that came about, the origins of it was slave patrol, slave mm. catchers. And once there was emancipation and there was this idea of, oh, we freed the slaves, they basically took slave patrols. And all of a sudden, the same slave patrols became police departments. So when I watched the police department burn, and of course, there were no people in it, I was like, it was very symbolic. For sure. And it was no important to see the symbolism of it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you, you, so you recently, you wrote a book. Last time you were on, you, you, were, you were talking about the book was coming up. And since it's come out, it's an amazing book, by the way. Um, and as I'm listening to it, I'm listening to you talk about how many violent threats not only you've received, but your children and your parents and people related to you have literally been threatened physically. Physical violence has been threatened in, like, to them because of the work you're doing, because of how in your face your work is, which is important. And what I thought when I'm listening to you talk about it is you don't actually know that you're committed to nonviolence until somebody threatens you or your family. So oh. my question to you is, how do you not hate? Because if anybody has the sort of psychological, emotional, I can totally understand it, like excuse to hate, it would be you. And how do you not in the face of all of that? I don't want to carry that burden, Corey. I carry the burden of watching the injustice that is happening to the people that I love, to my friends, to my neighbors, to the communities that I come from. And that is the burdens that we carry. And, and I and hate mm. is a very heavy burden to hold in my heart. Mm. And so for me, um, hating doesn't bring about progress. It doesn't bring about transformation, not only for myself, but for the communities that I come from and the communities that I love. And so for me, what I put my energy into is continuing to do the work that I do in the face of hate. And I think what people have to understand is that what really bothers those in our opposition is people who are unbought and unbossed and people who do not have fear. And that is the way that I stand up to opposition. I don't have to hate my opposition. I just have to keep doing what, I, what I'm doing and saying what I'm saying and continuing to speak truth to power. It has been a, a very difficult journey for someone like me um, as someone who has a lot of intersecting identities. And to be someone who stands up against the most powerful entities in this country, which are police unions, police departments, elected officials, those who have actual influence over my life, over our lives. And so for me, the experiences that I've had um, have been met with people by radical love. And so, for example, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the threats are one thing. 
but also, you know, going to college campuses and sometimes having oppositional forces on college campuses who are saying, um, we don't want this person to come to our campus. We are going to block this truth teller from our campus and watching faculty, watching student groups, black student unions, um, Muslim student unions, um, other issue-based unions on the college campuses who have said, absolutely not, not on our watch. We are bringing this truth teller to our campus. Mm. I've had people who have threatened universities with pulling donations for having a speaker like me. And you know what? Those universities have stood up for my right because of academic freedom and and free speech for me to come to those college campuses. And, And so for me, what I worry most about in our movements, Corey, is not the threats that I could lose my life. I'm ready for that. That's a, that's an easy one. That's an easy for me because mm-hmm. I believe that God decides when I go. Um, and mm-hmm. if God wants to take me in, 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 as a martyr in this movement for justice, I'm very honored if, if I am chosen for that path. Mm-hmm. But I, what I am afraid of is our movements and leaders in our movements who do not have the kind of courage to defend our truth tellers. Mm-hmm. We have to come to a point where we defend our own as much as the opposition defends their own, that we mm. have people united around radical love and justice and liberation for all in the same way that our opposition is united around hate and divisiveness and tribalism and the many other forms of isms and things that are out there. And so that means a few things. It means defending our women of color who get attacked, defending people of color who get attacked, our, our Black leadership that gets attacked. We need to organize our resources to defend those on the front lines, to give to the most boldest organizations so that they can remain independent and be as bold as we need them to be in this moment. And it requires us also, Corey, to have to sometimes talk to our little friends, you know, friends of ours who may be not just white friends, but friends who are black and who are people of color who just need someone to give them just that little push and say, listen, we are all in this together. It is time for you to stand up. It is time for you to use your pulpit. It's time for you to use your position, your leadership position at whatever institution you are in. And I'm actually seeing that right now, a, a kind of increase in people saying, you know what, this, these young people have created the political will that I've mm-hmm. always needed for me to finally speak my truth. And, mm-hmm. and that's where I am right now. So this threats have, and my family has experienced this, as you know. And I've had those hard conversations with my children many times. And I think my children now are in a very different place. They're old enough. Like one is my son is in his third year of college. My daughter is in her second year of college. And my youngest is in 10th grade. And I've fixed it all. Whatever happens to me, Corey, they have a village to raise them, to mm. love them. Um, mm. Knowing that they had a mother that stood up no matter the consequences. And I always knew there were going to be consequences. And, and being able to accept those consequences, because I know that people before me have had to experience the same. Wow. Golly, man. That's so inspiring. And, and it's so like, it, it's so what any person of faith has signed up for. We, when, you, when you become a person of faith, when you live from a place of faith, you are a person who signed up to resist evil in the world. And mm-hmm. that is the path. Now, you, you mentioned something that, that I've, find most fascinating about your work and, and that is intersectionality. And and the reason why I think this is such an important thing to talk about is because it can get so complicated. Like I was just reading uh, this morning about Ida B. Wells and how she was one of the first people in the late 1800s to resist lynching. 
But she even even in her resisting lynching, initially she was kind of slow to it because white folks in the South had connected lynching to rape. And they were claiming that the reason lynching was important is because these black animals are out here raping our women. And so to approach that conversation in the public specter was to basically it was so polarized that you had to take a side. And I say that I ask you about that because when you talk about the liberation of Palestine and Palestinian people, I've seen so many folks who talk about that be labeled as anti-Semitic. And so that people put you in this position where if I'm pro-Palestine, that must mean automatically I'm I'm anti-Semitic. And it it's different than being here in America because here in America, black folks who resist white supremacy, white folks don't have this sort of protected space of we were also oppressed that Jewish people have. So when you when you approach these sorts of you know these sorts of things, how do you manage that in a cancel culture? I imagine that there has to be some inner resolve and inner sense of like right is right, truth is truth. But I just wanted to hear you talk about how you navigate the those really, really tricky waters. You know, my identity, Corey, in of itself is controversial and is, is a political statement. You know, when someone innocently asks me, hey, where's your family from? And I innocently answer and say, my family is Palestinian. Just saying that my family is Palestinian is a political statement. People wow. will actually respond and say, oh, um, I didn't really mean to get into a political conversation. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You just mm. asked where my family was from. And wow. so, so, so my existence is a political statement. And so because my existence is a political statement, the words that come out of my mouth are political. And so just, just the declaration of my Palestinianness, my connection as an indigenous Palestinian, I mean, I am the great, 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 great granddaughter of Palestinians who are indigenous to the land that we now call Israel-Palestine. And mm. for me, what I say to people is, and, and this is the same concept for Black people in America, I, our existence is resistance. The idea that I exist as a Palestinian is resistance to the propaganda that I shouldn't exist, that there's no such thing as you know Palestinians. And so when we continue to invoke ourselves in the conversation, when we challenge the dominant narrative, which is a supremacist narrative that has continue to be propagated in the United States, mostly by Christian Zionists, right? Um, mm. You have to be clear about those who have the most power in America are Christian Zionists. And they have some sort of prophecy around this idea that Israel has to exist. And, you know, when, you, you, you know the story. I mean, it's yeah, crazy yeah. that, that right-wing Jewish Zionists even, even, even attach themselves to Christian Zionists. Because really what it is, is that when the destruction of Israel happens is when Jesus comes back and I don't know what the prophecy is, but it's really a very like messed up, like, I don't know, it it's a prophecy. Like, I don't understand yeah. how anybody aligns with that. So yeah. for me, Corey, what I've decided in my life is as I honor my own ancestors and my grandparents and great grandparents who have sacrificed for me to be here in this country and have this platform is I am Palestinian. And I'm also an American. And if I'm going to stand up against the U.S. government and their violation of human rights and civil rights against Black people and other marginalized people, I'm going to do that in every corner of this world. And I'm going to do that against the state of Israel. Because the state of Israel, why the state of Israel, Corey, is an important question that people ask me. There are many countries around the world that engage in human rights violations. North Korea, China, Saudi Arabia, you know, the list goes on. And, what, and my answer to that is, as an American, 
I do not fund North Korea to engage in human rights violation, although I can oppose them as a government. Mm. I don't fund China to put Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. But we, the American people, do give our taxpayer dollars and in particular military aid to the state of Israel, which they use to occupy the Palestinian people. Mm. And so I have a moral obligation as a human rights and civil rights activist as a Muslim and a person of faith, and as a Palestinian to honor my own lineage and my family to stand up against the state of Israel. And I'm not afraid to do that. And I will reject at every corner, at every at every angle, that anyone, this idea and claim that anyone who criticizes the quote, Israeli government or the Jewish state is anti-Semitic. And I will reject that at every way. And I will not stop criticizing the state of Israel for its human rights violations against the Palestinian people. And in this recent context, Corey, as you probably have heard on the news, and it's coming up a lot in conversation, that Israel has now found a friend in the fascist Donald Trump and are now beginning to implement more annexation of Palestinian land, which very simply means more stealing of Palestinian land. Annexation means that it's not yours. So in order to annex something, it means you have to take it from someone else. And what they are doing is annexing and stealing more Palestinian land, which, by the way, has been opposed across the world by pretty much the majority of powers. Like the Israeli government has not found anyone to entertain them on annexation, both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations before. But then they found the fascist like Trump to tell them, you go do what you need to do. And so what I'm saying is I'm going to speak up against that. And I'm willing to be vilified. I, I am willing to have, I'm willing to take whatever consequences come with that. Because what I do know and what I know what history has taught me in this country, Corey, is that 20 years from now, people will look back and say, damn, that lady was telling the truth. We should have listened. Yeah. To her. It's the yeah. same conversation we were having about South African apartheid in this country. And you know who was on the wrong side of history when it came to South African apartheid? The United States government was on the wrong side of history just like mm. they're on the wrong side of history when it comes to Israel-Palestine. You know mm. who else was on the wrong side of history, Corey, when it came to South African apartheid? The state of Israel was on the wrong side. And so for me, I'm going to be on the right side. Yeah. And the right side may be the hard side, but it's still the right side. And one day people will look back and say, I wish I was on the right side of history. For sure. Let me let me ask you one last question. I know, I know you're very busy and I don't want to hold you up all day because I could. I've been having this conversation. Um, but you tweeted, um, if you are committed to justice for all people, then you should be committed to the freedom, liberation, and self-determination of the Palestinian people. And then you quoted Nelson Mandela, who said, we know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. And I just bring that quote to you or bring that tweet to you to just ask how it is that people like myself, who considers myself to be an advocate of justice, other friends of mine and, and folks that you and I both know that are out here raising our voices, trying to raise money, doing all that we can to organize to uh, make sure that justice is basically the default position of the entire world. Um, how do we find our liberation connected to the liberation of people who we may not even know that much about? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the uh, quotes that I bring with me, Corey, to every movement space that I'm in, and people know this very well about me, I say it all the time. It, it's a quote that comes from an Aboriginal woman named Leela Watson. And she says, if you have come here to help me, 
You are wasting your time. But if you have come here because you believe that your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And so for me, our role is to challenge the, the dominant narratives that are around us. And we cannot say that our liberation is bound up with one another here just in the United States of America. We are human beings that are connected to people all over the world. We, are, we have ancestries that are, are, are across the world. And those people um, are our people. And so we could be free, as free as we think we can be in the United States of America. But if the people in Africa, the people in the Middle East, the people in you know, Asia, the people in South America are not free, we are not fully free, Court. And so what I say to people in the United States of America, if you are going to also say Black Lives Matter and see this as a trendy opportunity to join in this conversation, you cannot say Black Lives Matter and say that you are supporting a resistance against a government that violates the human rights, that over-polices, that controls the lives of, and not be able to say the same about what's happening to Palestinians in Palestine. And, the, and, and also there is a long history of Black solidarity with the Palestinian people, from Desmond right. Tutu to, to Nelson Mandela, to Kwame Toure, to Malcolm X, to many, many across the years from the Black Panther Party, people who saw the fight for liberation as a global fight. And that is what is different about this generation. They are global activists. They believe in the idea of freedom of liber and liberation across this, this world. So what I want people to do in this moment is conversations and questions and asking and saying to someone, how can you accept the idea of safety and security at the expense of another people? How can people who support Israel say, this is a state for the safety and security of the Jewish people and not be able to uh, explain how that's possible by taking away the safety security of another people. And what I always say to people all the time, Corey, is this. If someone came to me as a Palestinian Muslim American in the United States of America and said, Linda, we are about to give full freedom and liberation to Muslims in America. We are going to give you everything that you want. We are going to make sure your community is safe and secure, that we're going to end all profiling, and we're going to just let you live and thrive in America. But that would mean that we're going to continue to uh, uh, target Black people or undocumented people and other marginalized people in order for you to have that freedom and security. I would say, keep that freedom and security. I do not want my people to have any security and safety at the expense of any other people. And so what I'm doing, Corey, is I'm calling people to a higher place. And I'm, I'm saying to you, I'm not taking away your history of oppression, the generations of trauma, the generations of genocide. I, I, I reaffirm all of that. And I know that happened. And I know it's harmful and hurtful and it's passed on from generation to generation, not only amongst the Jewish people, but also amongst Black people. What I'm saying is that a freedom of a people that is built on the oppression of another people is just not going to work. It's not going to work. It is not going to ever allow you to be fully free and to thrive. And that is what has happened to the state of Israel. It is it, it continues to say how there's the security of Israel is under threat and the security of, of Israel and this is why, and I always say to people, the Jewish people will have safety and security that they deserve when everybody in that region is free. And so I believe that the, that the liberation of the Palestinian people is bound up with the liberation of the Jewish people in that land and that we can, as human beings, coexist Corey, together and live in a democratic state where we can see each other and see our children in one another 
and be able to participate equally in our government, build mm. programs together, build culture. We, I believe in that. That's what I believe. Mm. I believe in, in, in our capability as human beings to do that. Man, and if my Christian brothers and sisters did not just hear the language of the age to come, I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> like that, what you just described, I just felt in my body the 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 picture, the image of the day of a time of 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 the 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 age where all of the world is at peace, and that is something that I think that every human being should be able to get behind. Uh, now, your book is called "We're Not Here to Be Bystanders." It's an incredible book. I think everybody should read it. But I want to ask you why. Who specifically do you think this book most benefits uh, to read? I think I wrote the book for three audiences. One was for my family, a love letter to my family, something for them to hold and to cherish, a story of dignity, a story of mm. struggle, a story of resilience. That's beautiful. And I, and I believe that I owe that to them because if I left it up to Google, um, my, my legacy is <laughs> what it is. The second audience was to my Muslim American communities that I come from, those that I know and those that I don't, for them to also have something to see themselves in a in a story to, to say that this resonates with me. Someone sees me and my community oftentimes has not felt seen. And I felt like this book was a way to have particularly young Muslims and young Muslim women feel like they are seen. Mm-hmm. And my third audience really is people who are curious, people who are interested in understanding what it means to be a Muslim American in these United States of America. And also people who are trying to engage in activism and don't know exactly how and what the entry points are. And so a lot of the stories that I share in my book are about being a Muslim mom from Brooklyn and how that how I how I also was able to be a mom and an activist and to fight for marginalized people and what it also means for me to be a solidarity activist and what that means for all of us to be able to show up for other communities, even if they are not our own. So it's, it's a book of curiosity. It's a book of learning. And I hope people are open-minded and open-hearted uh, to, to, to just listen to my story. And what I ask people, Corey, is I'm not, he, my book is not there to convince you to take a position. My right. book is to say, just learn about who I am and the communities that I came from. Read our stories. Um, and then there, there, I guarantee you there is something in this book that you're going to say, wow, I resonate with that. Mm-hmm. I connect to that. That made me feel a certain way. And that's really what it is. Linda, thanks so much for coming back and blessing us with your presence on the podcast. I I so appreciate you uh, taking the time to to say what you've said to us. It's truly been a blessing. Thank you so much, Corey. I appreciate you and the conversations that you are invoking and the challenging of the status quo that you are doing in your own way, because we all got a role to play. And I appreciate you for playing yours. Thank you. Well, thanks to all of you who listened to the podcast. I'd like to thank Comfort Fit for the music. Once again, the song you're listening to is called Sorry. Thank you to all of you who have rated, reviewed, and shared this podcast with other people. I'd like to give a special thanks to the Patreon community. Thank you for your support and thank all of you for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time. 